Engel. The Undecideds, or how certain drug lords influenced the new pop culture. We're in the 1980s. Hip-hop is starting to emerge. Cocaine is already everywhere. And soon, crack will be making a dramatic entrance in the ghetto. This unprecedented consumption will allow some dealers to become the kings of the streets and represents the new role models for their community. The Undecideds is going to tell you the journey that eight of these men went through, the harsh and brutal truth. These are the tales of millionaire drug dealers who have a direct impact on the phenomenal success of hip-hop. Think of Dr. Dre, Tupac, Jay-Z, Lil Wayne, and so many others. Would they have become such pop culture icons if certain paths were never crossed? Without passing judgment, without glorifying it, the Undecideds will guide you through the troubled backstage of hip-hop to its rise onto the worldly stage. So if you don't know, now you'll know. Episode 6, Ricky Donnell Ross, a.k.a. Freeway Rick Ross. Los Angeles, 1982. From a young age, Ricky thought playing tennis professionally would be his way out of the ghetto. But in order to get there, he'd have to start dealing drugs in order to pay for his lessons. Fifteen years later, Ricky became one of the biggest coke dealers in the United States. Locked up in prison after getting played by the CIA, Ricky finds out an up-and-coming rapper is using his real name to make a claim to fame. This is the story of Ricky Donnell Ross, a.k.a. Freeway Rick. When people hear the name Rick Ross, they think of the Miami rapper and his hit, Hustling. They remember his flashy style, the way he glorifies drug dealers, his collaborations with Jay-Z, Kanye West, and P. Diddy. But in reality, they got the wrong guy. The real Rick Ross is actually the rapper's favorite drug dealer. And his story goes back to the early 60s. In the small town of Tyler, in the heart of Texas, Ricky Donnell Ross was born January 26, 1960. Ricky's parents were sharecroppers from the Jim Crow South, farming corn and peanuts on the land they rented to other farmers to pay the bills. His father used to be a chef for the U.S. Army before buying the farm. His mother, Annie Mae, was a housekeeper for a time. Life was simple. Ricky lived out a quiet early childhood with his brother David until everything changed in 1963. Annie Mae had had enough of the South. She decided to leave her husband and go west to California. Annie Mae took the boys with her. Ricky was only three at the time. They found their new home in Los Angeles, California, where they lived in Compton. Now on her own as a single mother, Annie Mae took as many jobs as she could to provide for her boys. Even with all that effort, she still needed food stamps to put food on the table. Annie Mae's only goal was to make a better life for her children hoping one day to give them a life they could never have in Texas. But times were tough, and they were about to get tougher. By 1966, three years after moving to Compton, Annie Mae couldn't make rent. The family moved out of their apartment and went on to live with Annie Mae's sister and her husband in South Central. There again, trouble followed them. One evening during dinner, Ricky's uncle got violent with his wife. He insulted her beat her and threatened her with a knife until Annie Mae intervened. Grabbing a gun, she shot her brother-in-law, who died on the spot 
at the family dinner table. Annie Mae would go to prison before she could prove self-defense. The young Ricky realized all too soon what it meant to grow up poor and black in South Central. He knew he'd have to make it in this harsh and terrible world and learned how to hustle at a young age. By the time he was 10, Ricky already knew how to distract store employees and security guards. He could walk out of the stores with pockets full of sweets and bags full of shoes. It wasn't long before he started working for local pimps. His job? Knock on motel room doors to let the local Johns know their time was up with their hookers. In the evening, after hustling all day, he'd go back to his house in South Central, located right below the Harbor Freeway, earning him the street name Freeway Rick. The years went by. Ricky lived this life trying to balance hustling with the childhood when destiny came knocking. While he was with his friends hanging out at a park near home, a certain Richard Williams offered them jobs as ball boys at the neighborhood tennis court. For Ricky, this was a game changer. Richard Williams made a name for himself getting young kids off the street by teaching them to play tennis. Little by little, he taught Ricky the basics and Ricky was eager to learn. He hoped he could make something out of it and find a way out of South Central if he tried hard enough. But his life on the streets caught up to him. In 1979, Ricky got caught for the first time by the cops for car theft. Investigators found out that he was part of the Freeway Boys, a group of car thieves in South Central. Ricky got locked up, but only for a few weeks. When he got out, Ricky was determined to make it as a sports star. Thanks to his tennis talents, Ricky got accepted into Dorsey High, a famous performing arts high school in L.A., Located near Crenshaw in a neighborhood called The Jungle, Dorsey High made a name for itself for pumping out all kinds of famous students, like Robert Kardashian, the defense lawyer during the O.J. Simpson murder trial, and T. Rogers, co-founder of The Bloods. For Ricky, tennis became his only focus. He was determined to make it out. He didn't want to follow in his mother's footsteps. Very talented for his age, Tennis gave Ricky access to education. It also gave him a way to earn money by giving private lessons to the rich kids in Beverly Hills. Ricky was making $20 an hour in the white suburbs of L.A., a world where gardens were five times the size of his home and people traveled in limousines. His American dream was coming true. For Ricky, that dream had a name, Arthur Ashe the first African-American tennis player to earn a championship tennis title. Ricky trained tirelessly to be just as good, if not better, than Ash himself. But training wasn't enough. Ricky was almost illiterate, so he struggled in school. His grades weren't good enough to continue qualifying for his merit scholarship at Dorsey High, and he was on the verge of getting expelled. No good grades, no scholarship. No scholarship, no tennis lessons. As he trained during the day with the golden youth of Beverly Hills, he came home to South Central with the car thieves of the neighborhood. One day, it finally happened. Ricky lost his scholarship to Dorsey. It was a painful return to reality. If he wanted to find his way back to school, Ricky would have to find some money, fast. In 1982, Rick got a job at a garage. During his time fixing cars, 
he discovered cocaine for the first time. One of his co-workers, who was a dealer, got him a side hustle of his own, dealing cocaine. Rick took advantage of his new friend's advice and got selling. He had a dream to build. To fund his first purchase, Freeway Rick and one of his friends, Big Lope, went back to South Central Basics, steal a car to sell the rims. They'd make about $250, enough to buy an eight ball or an eighth of an ounce of cocaine. Cooking it would be enough to double their supply by turning it into Freebase. Cocaine cut with ammonia that was cheaper on the street with a hard-hitting high. Then they'd reinvest the profits. Demand for Freebase was already through the roof. Freeway Rick and Big Loke ended up hiring extra hands to cook coke. But things were about to change. Martin the Pimp, another local dealer, showed them that cooking with baking soda instead of ammonia produced more powerful highs and made Freebase cheaper to manufacture. It was a perfect way to make a lot of money. The profit margins were beyond Rick's wildest dreams. All he had to do was sell it. And so came the rise of a drug that would ravage the nation. Crack cocaine. Rick showed the same discipline building his business as he did with tennis. And that discipline paid off. In no time flat, Freeway Rick and Big Lope were running five crack kitchens across South Central. Freeway Rick may have struggled reading and writing, but he was a terrifyingly great strategist. To double his income, Rick hired a couple of dozen resellers. His plan? Give $100 advance doses to small dealers who could sell it in no time. Lured by the quick income, the dealers came back regularly to stock up on larger quantities. With more demand than he could supply, Rick's co-worker at the garage didn't have enough goods to keep up. Freeway Rick needed to find another way to fuel his interests. Through an acquaintance, Freeway Rick met Henry Corrales, a Nicaraguan exile with ties to the Latin American cocaine trade, who would supply Rick with his first kilos of cocaine. Rick, who only planned on hustling until he got back in Dorsey, relished the success of his growing dynasty. Hopes of playing professional tennis went out the window. That was up in smoke now. Henry Corrales decided to introduce Rick to two of his Nicaraguan suppliers, Oscar Danello Blandon and Juan Norwin Manessis Cantarera, a.k.a. El Rey de la Droga, the king of drugs. With these two suppliers, Freeway Rick would get Latin America's best cocaine at a great price. At that time, Rick paid $10,000 less than anyone in the United States drug trade for a kilo. Of course, Freeway Rick would have no trouble selling it because he didn't have any gang affiliations. Rick was basically a free agent. He dealt to both the Bloods and the Crips and ended up as their regular distributor. Rick was a cash supplier that helped them feed their families, buy their weapons, and build their territories in the hood. With his ghetto pass in the bag, Freeway Rick could work freely across the streets of L.A. Demand for crack exploded, and within a year, Freeway Rick found himself as the head of an empire that can generate up to $3 million a day. In 1984, he decided to expand through the South into Texas, Louisiana, 
St. Louis, and Atlanta, and then up north into Baltimore and New York. Crack was now in nearly 40 major cities, all distributed from planes coming from its suppliers in Nicaragua. This step up would even have a lasting effect on crime in the U.S., with the spread of gang violence in cities that had never experienced them before. The Bloods and Crips were working their way up the chain to control the crack market across the country. Crack repainted major U.S. cities red and blue. To launder his money, Freeway Rick invested in real estate, buying homes in cash to hide the paper trail. He also invested in car garages and even in a motel, which he left his mother, Annie Mae, to manage. Rick also sponsored a basketball and tennis team, still fond of the sports and his roots and his success. Finally, Ricky opened up a sports shop for his brother David. And Rick, he was happy with a bulletproof vest, walkie-talkie always by his side, and a 9mm handgun to defend himself. That was Freeway Rick's trademark. No valuable jewelry, no flashy clothes, no big cars. Just a pair of jeans and a t-shirt to keep a low-profile lifestyle. His biggest concern now was counting and storing his money rather than making it. Rick would later say that he spent a whole day counting $2.8 million in the middle of his living room. He had more than enough in the bank to keep him happy. Freeway Rick was at the very top of the pyramid, but he was unaware of how he played a role in international politics. The 70s was the dead heat of the Cold War. In the middle of U.S. tensions with the then-Soviet Union, Nicaraguan's government fell to a coup. President Anastasia Somoza de Baila, the last of the Somoza dynasties to hold power in the country, was overthrown by the Sandinista National Liberation Front, supporters of the autocratic communist ideology led by Daniel Ortega. Located over 1,800 miles away, The U.S. government didn't want to see a second Cuba-like uprising in Latin America that would weaken their position against the Soviets. To bring down the SNLF, the Reagan administration would finance the opposition, Contras, U.S.-backed rebels that carried out military and political actions throughout Nicaragua. But despite their terroristic policies and the fact they started a quasi-civil war, the Sandinistas democratically won the 1984 elections. The U.S. government was later tried and found guilty by the International Court of Justice for providing financial support for the Contras to continue war campaigns, despite the Sandinistas' electoral win. In 1986, the U.S. government signed the Bolin Act, officially ending financial support for the Contras. Despite the blow, President Ronald Reagan wanted to find new ways to fund the Contras, unofficially this time. Oliver North, then head of the National Security Council, decided that drug trafficking would be the solution Reagan needed to get around the Bolin Act. North got the CIA involved. They'd be most likely able to help a drug trafficker bring product to the states. The plan was simple. The drugs would enter the country smoothly, and the profits would finance the Contras. The trafficker in question was Oscar Danello Blandon, one of Freeway Rick's suppliers. Oblivious to it, Freeway Rick was simply getting outdone by the CIA. 
Despite this, Rick's empire continued to expand. Police efforts failed to stop rising drug-related crimes, gang activities, and homicides in Los Angeles. To put an end to it once and for all, the LAPD set up the Freeway Rick Task Force, a nine-member team with one goal in mind, take down Rick's empire. They had only one problem. Rick's low-profile lifestyle worked too well. No one knew what Rick actually looked like, which made him hard to find. That changed in April 1987. After hours of investigation and hideouts, members of the task force spotted him. Rick spotted them as well, which led to a car chase. He tried in vain to lose the cops, but after a shootout, they eventually arrested him. The charges were possession of drugs, resisting arrest, and attempted murder on a police officer. The only thing was that Freeway Rick didn't shoot anyone. The police created that story to justify shooting at him. An investigation revealed faulty charges against Rick, so he was allowed to walk. Rick knew he needed to lay low for a while, so he packed up and moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. From there, he kept on growing his network to Indianapolis and Cleveland. The business was doing well until September 1988. Police intercepted a shipment of nine kilos of cocaine at a bus station in New Mexico. Agents put a tracker on it to lead them to whoever was planning on selling it. This led the cops to IDing 10 people in the crime ring. Among them, Freeway Rick, who would be arrested less than a year later in June 1989. Trapped, Freeway Rick pleaded guilty to drug trafficking and got a 10-year prison sentence starting in 1990. At that time, more and more cases of corrupt police officers were coming out of Los Angeles. Theft, stealing criminal evidence from drug seizures and beatings. The actions of some members of the drug squad tainted the reputation of the LAPD. Always sharp, Freeway Rick saw this as an opportunity to reduce his prison sentence. He was familiar with some of these cops and offered to exchange information about them for a reduction in time served. In the end, it worked out. Rick's sentence got commuted from 10 years to four years and nine months. Soon, he'd be on his way to setting up another project close to his heart. Far away from the world of street life, Rick dreamed of helping disadvantaged youth. For that, he bought an abandoned South Central Theater. He planned on turning the ruins into a neighborhood youth complex with a recording studio and concert hall. But when he was released from prison in September 1994, his financial situation was at its worst. Everything Rick owned was seized, and his legal team cost him a fortune. Plus, Rick paid nearly a million dollars to the owner of the theater as a deposit. He expected the rest of the money to close the deal. Unable to settle, the theater would slip away from Freeway Rick. He said goodbye to any hope of a life off the streets. By chance, Oscar Danello Blandone, his former crime partner, offered him a golden opportunity. Blandone had an outstanding balance with some Colombians and needed to come up with the money quick. He asked Rick to find him a buyer for 100 kilos of cocaine. Rick would make a $300,000 commission. Rick saw this as a chance to finalize the purchase for the theater and finance the repairs. The plan was a little risky since he would be the fixer, but with no other options, he agreed to it. 
On March 2, 1995, at a San Diego mall, Blandone, one of his friends, and Rick showed up to sell the goods. However, drug enforcement agents knew the deal was going down and busted them with all 100 kilos of cocaine and Rick Chevrolet. This deal would have gotten him out of the game forever if it had just gone according to plan. Freeway Rick was the victim in his own coup, organized by authorities. Blandone had become one of their informants. This was the third time Freeway Rick had been arrested on drug charges. With the three-strike law alive and well, Rick's fate was clear. A life sentence without parole. On March 19, 1996, Rick started the rest of his life behind bars at Texarkana Penitentiary. That same summer, an investigative journalist named Gary Webb released a series of articles under the name Dark Alliance. He explained in detail the role of the CIA, Contras, and Freeway Rick had in a war between the United States and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Webb was a well-known and respected journalist who had been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for his previous work. Webb supported his investigation with testimonies like one from Oscar Danello Blandone, who admitted he was working with the CIA and the Contras for years. Webb's articles resonated with the African-American community who suffered the most from the crack epidemic. But the articles got destroyed by prestigious newspapers like the New York Times. Under pressure, Gary Webb resigned from the San Jose Mercury News, where he worked while writing the articles. Yet, if it weren't for Webb, Freeway Rick would have never known he got played by the CIA. Webb broke the news to Rick when he visited him in prison to do an interview for the articles. Freeway Rick realized he had been a tool for the government. In 1998, an investigation led by the new director of the CIA, Frederick Hitz, would come to the same conclusion as Gary Webb. The evidence was undeniable. The Reagan administration had covered up the drug trade between Nicaragua and the United States. I will tell you, Director Deutsch, as a former Los Angeles police narcotics detective, that the agency has dealt drugs throughout this country for a long time. Despite the scandal, Freeway Rick stayed in jail. While doing his time, he ended up completing his education and got his GED. Rick finally got the chance to learn how to read. Finding new passion, Rick threw himself wholeheartedly into a new fight. With as much bullheadedness as he had for tennis or drug dealing, Rick decided to put all his energy into finding the loophole that can get him out ASAP. To make it happen, he read more than 300 books. After months of research, he found an answer. One law stated that his third strike was technically his second. His first two incarcerations were related to the same case, meaning he could still technically have one last chance. With that argument in hand, he and his lawyers appealed his sentence, and he got 20 years, then 14 years, instead of life. It was a miracle. In prison, Rick kept on reading. While in jail, Rick got to meet other big-time drug lords like Harry O. Harry O told him to invest in music through Dr. Dre. Rick also gave tennis lessons to other prisoners. He would say jokingly, he was in the best shape of his life while at Texarkana. Freeway Rick was released on the morning of May 4th, 2009. 
internet, iPhones, flat screens, Rick discovered a new world, far from the one he had left when he entered prison. But there was one thing that reminded him of his old life. This rapper he kept hearing on loop on the radio and TV, William Leonard Roberts II, known by his stage name, Rick Ross. Not only had the rapper stolen Rick's name, but he was rapping about his lifestyle. Drugs, money, South American criminal connections. Nothing was missing. Freeway Rick was furious, especially since he relied on his name to bring his story to the big screen. From June 2010 to December 2013, he went to court, facing Rick Ross, the rapper, to defend his name and his intellectual property. But it was a lost cause. The First Amendment's freedom of speech allowed Roberts II to call himself whatever he wanted. The rules of the street are far removed from those of show business. Despite the legal blow, Freeway Rick still came out with his autobiography. His character would live on for a long time in U.S. culture. He was featured in many movies and was the inspiration behind Avon Barksdale and The Wire. Rappers and musicians still pay homage to Freeway Rick in their songs, calling him the Walmart of cocaine. In Philadelphia, another rapper signed by Jay-Z was also inspired by Freeway Rick Ross, taking the name Freeway. Much wiser than Roberts II, the new rapper contacted Freeway Rick, asking for permission first. Freeway Rick Ross is a street legend who, according to the authorities, imported and distributed three tons of cocaine and made $900 million between 1982 and 1989. That comes out to about $2.5 billion today. Gary Webb, the whistleblower journalist who lived his life in obscurity after his revelations, would later die by suicide in 2004. Rick Ross, the rapper, would release nine albums under his stolen name, selling tens of millions of records and repeatedly taking first place on the U.S. charts. For the real freeway Rick Ross, all of his children became tennis players. He often wondered what could have happened if he kept on playing tennis himself. What if Freeway Rick had never existed? Would crack have exploded and taken over the country without him? Would the gang culture have spread so much across the U.S.? Would Hollywood have chosen to use the violent lifestyle that he represented so well as a common backdrop for his movies and music videos? Without Rick Donnell Ross, how would America look today? Find the playlist related to the episodes on all the streaming platforms and on theundersiders.com. The Undersiders is produced by Angle and created by Francois Cousset. Sound production by V in Paris, France. Original scores by Max Zeppel. English version narrated by Ellis Park and recorded at Lotus Productions in New York City. Find more episodes of The Undersiders anywhere you find podcasts and on theundersiders.com.